Tonight, as we start a new year, I wanted to spend some time reflecting on us as a group and how do we make 2022 successful? What's it going to take for us as a ministry, as a Bible study, as a Christian group to be effective within this context, but also as, a, as part of our church? And so to do that, let me ask you to open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews and go to chapter 10. It was 1928 when Mr. Hill rented a boat in Massachusetts. He just wanted to go out for a, you know, a little bit of rowing and a little bit of a time of relaxation and seeking some peace and quiet. So he rented a boat and he got on the lake and it was only about 30 minutes after which this little boat tipped over and he began to drown and he began to scream for help. And uh, unfortunately, after struggling and hoping that somebody would hear him and come out and help him, Mr. Hill drowned. All the while, the person, Mr. Osterland, who rented the boat to him, was standing on the dock watching Mr. Hill struggle and suffer and ultimately drown as he smoked his own cigarette. Mr. Osterland, the man who rented the boat, did not help the drowning individual. As you can imagine, there was a lawsuit, and when the case came before the court, the court actually decided that the man who was just watching another man struggle, suffer, and ultimately drown was not culpable. He wasn't guilty, and so the verdict was not guilty for Mr. Osterland. It was years, many years later, that the case was overturned, and Massachusetts did find that it is the responsibility of the bystander to help somebody else in need. But as we hear about the initial verdict and about the initial situation, I hope that within you there's this cry for injustice, unfair. How can the court just conclude that this man could stand by and watch somebody else cry for help and drown right in front of his face, in his eyes? Can I hear an echo of the sarcastic remark from Cain back to God in Genesis chapter 4? Am I my brother's keeper? When God asked Cain about his brother Abel and where he was. I think our society is slowly becoming more and more self-focused. If it takes me out of the way of doing what I want to do. Or if it's inconvenient for me, I'd rather not step out of the way to help somebody else. I think more and more that's true of our society. Our culture has been infused with individualism. Whatever helps me, whatever is convenient for me, whatever I enjoy, that's what I want to pursue and that's what I want to invest in. Relativism says that whatever I determine to be morally right is morally right. And nobody can tell me what to believe and nobody can tell me what to do and how to think. Privatization teaches us that whatever I do is my private business. If I'm doing something in my own house behind closed curtains, behind closed doors, on my iPhone, in secret, nobody can judge me. Nobody can tell me that that is wrong. Privatization, it's all about me and my private individual life. Privatization shelters us to a degree from the needs of others. And then individualism is a confluence of relativism and privatization because it encourages you to fix your gaze on self. And I would say more and more, especially in the last year and a half, when at times we've been forced to be isolated from other people, it's become easier to become more self-absorbed. For example, you've probably read the statistic, statistic that a plastic surgery has gone up 100%. Because as people see themselves on Zoom, they don't like what they see. And so they got to fix it. It's amazing how business is thriving in that industry. You see, the goal of our society, and most people, I'm not saying to everybody, but certainly the general populace, I want to pursue what benefits me. I want to pursue what advances my career, what helps me. And yeah, if it's not too inconvenient, I will help somebody else. But really, it cannot be that inconvenient. Self-fulfillment at any cost. That's not the Christian way. That's not what the Bible expects of an individual who professes to be a Christian. You see, the Christian life is about serving others. It's all about serving others. Jesus said of himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve to the point of 
giving his life for many, for others. That is Jesus as the model. And so when we think about the Christian life, and as we think about the Christian life in this coming year, in 2022, I'd like for us to consider that for yourself, that your Christian life isn't about you. It's about serving others, and to launch into this topic, I want to read a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The author says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. The challenge in these two verses is to fellowship for the purpose of loving and serving other people. That's the point of fellowship that he's addressing in these couple verses. And we are to excel and encourage other people to excel in this endeavor. Now you have to understand that Hebrews was written to a group of Christians in the mid-60s, the first century, who were beginning to waver in their commitment to Christ. They stopped going to church, they stopped fellowshipping, they stopped interacting with one another because the cost of professing to be a believer was too high. If you were to read a little bit later in the chapter 10, you'd realize that some of them were being arrested. Some of their property was being confiscated. And so some Christians were visiting those in prison and others weren't. In other words, there was a cost to professing that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And so people began to be afraid of the consequences and they stopped fellowshipping with other believers. And the author writes this book, to encourage people to remember you're a Christian and you're supposed to spend time with other Christians. Hebrews 10 is written to counteract the thoughts that it's okay to forego fellowship or it's okay to forego following Christ faithfully if it costs you your job, if it costs you your reputation, if it may mean that you're going to be kicked out of your family, You might be mocked, you might be laughed at, you might even lose your life. Hebrews says, no, you should still follow Jesus even if you experience any of these negative consequences. Question then is, how do you endure? How do you continue to faithfully follow? And his answer is, continue to spend time with other Christians. What's going to help a believer who is being opposed and hostility is the experience of his or her life is to spend time with other believers. That will help you be faithful. The Westminster Confession of Faith says there are three graces that sustain your Christian life. The Word of God, prayer, and fellowship. Spending time with other Christians actually helps you be more faithful and to be more healthy as a believer. So my desire for us this evening is to evaluate this third means of grace, fellowship. What does it mean to be in fellowship with other believers? Because I do think that if we commit to this Christian expectation, our Bible study will thrive. Our Bible study will be healthy. We will understand what the point of our individual lives are and then as it is in the community and then the part of this church and then how it affects the greater community around us. So let me just share with you four genuine marks or four marks of genuine fellowship. Four marks of genuine fellowship and it begins with community. John Piper, not long ago, tweeted, we long to belong. We long to belong. And that's a true statement. I think all of us, in fact, some of you might be here this evening because you're looking for a community. And I know this because in the past, this is my 10th year leading this Bible study. And in the past, people do come here for that. And that's okay. We welcome you. We want you to be here because that's what we're for. We're here to create a Christian community to your benefit. But also, we'd like you to benefit others. Because you're part of this community. We long to belong. That's a true statement. We want acceptance. We want relationships. We want friendships. We want social interaction. Because God designed us as social beings. This goes back all the way to Genesis 1. That's how God intended it to be. There's the Trinity. The Trinity interacts with one another. The three persons of the Trinity. There's a social dynamic in that relationship. In our God. And in the church... 
we bring the notion of fellowship into these relationships and we make this statement. There is a difference between socializing and fellowshipping. Spending time with other Christians, just spending time with other Christians is not the same thing as fellowship. It's not the same thing as Christian biblical fellowship. And I'd like you to think about your relationships in this way. Two circles, two concentric circles. Imagine a circle within a circle. The outer circle is reflecting your social relationships. The inner circle is fellowship. In other words, you have to penetrate the outer circle first in order to have genuine fellowship. You have to be comfortable with the people that you're talking to. You kind of have to go through the, who are you? What's your background? What, what interests you? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? The normal relational conversations. Who are you? Getting to know each other. That's the social dynamic, the social outer circle. The inner circle is fellowship. You don't just fellowship with somebody by coming up to them and say, I want to fellowship with you. Not knowing their name, not knowing anything about them. That's not going to happen. That's going to be awkward. And that person should definitely turn around and walk away. <laughs> because you have to penetrate that outer circle of, no, let's, make a, let's develop a friendship first. Let's figure out who we are. And then that will lead you to true biblical fellowship. The word fellowship in the Bible in the New Testament appears 19 times. And the idea behind that term, both in the Greco-Roman world, in the, in the greater culture, but also in the Bible, it has to do with relationships, partnerships. Sometimes it referred to legal relationships. Sometimes it referred to business relationships. Sometimes it referred to a marriage. And it even referred to a relationship between God and man, even outside the Bible. In other words, fellowship has those elements as part of the terminology. In the New Testament, Fellowship does mean your relationship with God, and it also refers to your relationship with other Christians. Consider 1 John chapter 1. Some of you might be thinking of this already. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle John writes this little letter to Christians in Asia Minor towards the end of the first century, most likely 96, year 96 or so. And he talks about having a relationship with Jesus and then with other Christians. And this is what he writes. Verse 3, what we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. So the purpose of this letter letter is for you to be reminded of your fellowship with God and your fellowship with other Christians. And that leads to complete joy. The goal of fellowship initially is to bring God and man into a relationship. To establish that relationship. And that happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means you can't have fellowship with other people unless both of you are genuine Christians. Fellowship is reserved for the Christian community in that regard. And so to order to, in order to truly fellowship with other people, you have to both be believers. Because your relationship with other believers is intended to promote the vertical relationship, the vertical fellowship that is with God. So in other words, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, right? Hebrews 10 Love God, we're supposed to encourage one another to love God, and that flows out in our love for one another. John's proclamation in 1 John is that we are proclaiming what we have seen and what we have heard. That's Jesus. We saw him, we heard him. Elsewhere he says we touched him, we ate with him, we spent life with him, spent three years with him. That experience, all that knowledge of hearing him teach and seeing him and watching him do miracles, all that is now being proclaimed to other people so that there's a fellowship that is developed, which is the gospel. That's the fundamental principle of all our fellowship. You have to repent from your sins. You have to be restored in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because until you repent and confess your sins, you have been an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. You've been rebelling against God. You've been running your own way. 
And you've been doing things for yourself, kind of like what I said in the very beginning, individualism, for yourself, whatever benefits me. I don't care about God. But the gospel enters your life and says, no, you are to live for God. He is king. He is Lord. He's your master. He's your savior. He's your creator. Therefore, your life is to be focused on him. And if you do repent, he promises to forgive you of every single sin that you've committed. And then he brings you into a relationship that he calls fellowship with God, the Father, Spirit, and Son. And then that, by extension, gives you access to other people who profess the same thing, Christians. You see, fellowship in all its aspects comes from the proclamation of the word about Christ. That is the foundation. So in other words, make sure you understand this. Fellowship is first and foremost a relationship. Then it's an activity. Then it's something that you do as part of your Christian life. And John promises complete joy. Which I hope you ask yourself, if your life is a bit unjoyful, if you're liking joy, if you're liking contentment, satisfaction, maybe because you're not genuinely fellowshipping as a Christian should. Perhaps with God, perhaps there's a, a defect in your relationship with God. Sin might be blocking that. And so you can't have a direct access because you're not honoring God because you're living a life of sin. There's no fellowship, therefore there's no joy. Or perhaps it's horizontal with other people. You're not fellowshipping with them. You're isolating yourself as a believer. And so you're not enjoying the Christian life as God intended it for you. In the book of Philippians, Paul uses the word joy 16 times. 16 times. In chapter 2, it's tied to you serving other people, and that gives you joy. But if you go all the way back to chapter 1, in verse 5, it says that we have fellowship with each other, Paul says, of the Philippians, in partnership or in fellowship for the gospel. Now, understand this. The Philippians were living beyond or below, rather, the poverty line. They were deep in poverty. They weren't individuals who had everything they wanted. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so their financial situation did not contribute to their joy, nor did it cause them to lack joy. They weren't looking for joy in a social situation or a socio-financial situation. Rather, they were finding it in fellowship with Paul for the gospel. Do you get that? In other words, you could have a very difficult life that's characterized by trials, and yet it can still be a joyful life because you're focusing your life on fellowship. Because you're brought into communion with God and then with other believers. Our pastor says this, anybody in fellowship with Jesus Christ is also in fellowship with anybody else in fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is our common ground. It's not social, economic, intellectual, cosmetic, or anything else superficial. Our common ground is that which is pulsing through the life of every Christian, the heartbeat of God. Our common ground is that we possess a common eternal life and are children in the same family. True fellowship entails membership in the same community, which by necessity implies a separation from another type of community. As a Christian, you have been separated from one community for another community, and that is the first component of genuine fellowship. You are in a new community. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is what Paul says in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. You guys are thinking, stop me. Come on, somebody say something. <laughs> all right. Chapter six. Those are good verses too, I think, but have nothing to do with fellowship. <laughs> All right, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be equally yoked. Totally different stuff. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
I have an excuse. It's a new Bible. It's like my second time using it. All right. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership, that's the word for fellowship. What fellowship have righteousness and lawlessness? In other words, there is no fellowship between lawlessness and righteousness. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So he's giving you all these pairs saying there is no common ground between believers and unbelievers, between Satan and Christ, between righteousness and unrighteousness. It's like the people who believe in Mac versus those who believe in the PCs, right? They don't fellowship with each other. They mock each other, especially the genius bar people mock the non-genius bar people. I know this. You know this, right? I know that Carlos is here and Jason is here and they're probably never going to talk to me again right there. As they work for Apple. But, you know, those Apple people, you know, they're very, uh, let's just say that they don't lack self-confidence, right? As they think that they got it all figured out. And um, they mock those people who lease computers because those computers break every couple of years, unlike the Apple machine. Um, I tried to get into the Mac world over the holidays. I, somebody gave me a Mac Air I'm struggling. I'm about to give up on it. I'm so sorry. We'll teach you. Thank you. Thank you. But there is no fellowship between Mac people and non-Mac people at all. Right? It's like Satan and Jesus. Right? They don't get along at all. (laughs) Come on. Why? Why is there no common ground between certain types of communities? Because there's a different common ground or different ground that holds them together and then ultimately a different purpose into which they direct their lives. Here's the bottom line for the Christian fellowship. Our relationships within the Christian community are focused on eternity. They're focused on eternity. They're not focused on the temporary And so if your conversations are only focused on the temporary, on sports, on cars, on movies, on music, on food, houses, and so on, you're not contributing towards your eternal destination. You're not investing into that individual's eternal identity and eternal destiny. So fellowship is by default, by definition, directed towards an eternal perspective. We seek and we encourage one another to think about eternity. Remember this, the people you're sitting next to right now, the people you'll sit next to on Sunday, the people you'll go to community group with, small group with, the people you might go evangelize with, those people you'll spend eternity with. And eternity is a really long time, if you haven't thought about it. So the question is, are you investing into that eternal friendship? Luke 16 tells us to use money in this world to make friends for eternity. Are you thinking about your life that way? That I am going to spend eternity with the people next to me. Now, they'll get better, I promise you. They won't be as mean and as whatever. Fill in the blank. But that's what's going to be our future. And so there's the difference. Fellowship is about eternity. It's about eternal relationships. So don't waste your life simply talking about the non-eternal, the temporal. Because then you're not fellowshipping and you're wasting your time. Now, I'm not saying that you can only talk about Jesus and the Bible. That's also not right. That's awkward and weird. And don't do that. Please don't do that. No, there has to be a balance. We talked about the outer circle and the inner circle. But make sure that your friendships actually get into the inner circle at some point. And that when you walk away from a conversation with a Christian, that you have gained value and you've given value of eternal consequence. That is fellowship. And that requires a commitment. That's our second component of genuine fellowship. And that is a commitment. We have a common purpose. We are partners for the cause of Christ. Because we are actively promoting 
the gospel in the lives of other people. Sometimes for the first time and sometimes helping them understand the gospel and then live the gospel and apply the gospel and preach the gospel. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 42, that verse summarizes the convictions and the commitment of early Christians. The very, very, very first Christians. And they were committed to four things. The verse says, Acts 2, 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Teaching, fellowship, communion, and, and prayer. When Luke writes that verse, it's about 30 years after the formation of the church. So he's reflecting on 30 years of Christian history, and he's thinking back to the very beginning, the first Christians that he saw, and what they were committed about to. And he said, these are the four things that define these early Christians. Teaching. They wanted to know what is true about Jesus. The teaching about Jesus. Communion. Remembering Jesus. Jesus said, do, fulfill communion in remembrance of me. So the first one is the teaching about Jesus. The second one is remembrance of Jesus. The third one is prayer, talking to Jesus. And fellowship is interacting with other people about Jesus. Conversations with others about Jesus. You guys, this, these were the final four for the Christians of the first century. They were all about teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer because all that was oriented towards Christ and eternity. Paul describes his own commitment to fellowship in Romans chapter 1. When he writes the book of Romans, he had never been to Rome. Specifically, he hadn't been to Rome to visit the Christians in Rome. And in verses 11 and 12, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart a spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Each of us. Reciprocal encouragement. Each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So when Paul was going into a brand new Christian community, he wasn't coming in as the guy who knew it all. As the pastor who had planted multiple churches, as the guy says, I've got all the answers and I'm coming in to teach you. He's coming in to say, I am here to encourage you and I want to be encouraged by you. Reciprocal fellowship, reciprocal encouragement. And this is Paul, an apostle, the year 56. He'd been a Christian for at least 10 years at that point. Multiple churches had been planted by that point. That's the norm for every single Christian. Relationships that will give you encouragement so you can use whatever God has gifted you with to the benefit of another. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're stacking chairs, picking up trash, serving food or preaching the Bible or leading music. Everybody can be an encouragement to one another. That's the New Testament expectation. It's always a two-way relationship and the people that come regularly, I had a friend, I mentioned this before, who came to this church for two years straight and didn't talk to a single person. Just sat in the back, came in and came out. It's discouraging and, and really sad. But I think all of us are, should be responsible to reach out and to meet one another, not just for the sake of social interaction, not just that outer circle, but spiritual interaction. True, genuine fellowship. No matter where you come from in life. Because John Wesley was right when he said, There's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. There's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. You guys, there's no such thing as a self existing eye, or self existing toe, or self existing ear, or toenail. Kind of gross. No, we, our body consists of multiple members. And the Bible, the New Testament, uses the body as a metaphor for the Christian community. In other words, whatever gift God has given you, you don't exist alone. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian because God intended for us to live in a community. And within that community, we're supposed to be committed to caring for one another. We're supposed to care for one another. Jesus said before he died in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the mark of the true Christian, loving other people. And it's in the context of 
sacrifice. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and then he said that. Do that to others. There's an expectation within the Christian community that you serve one another. In other words, the word fellowship is not ever to be separated from sacrifice, self-sacrifice for other individuals. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says this, So that there may be, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Christians, genuine Christians, ought to care for one another. And this is how you express your care practically. First of all, time. Sometimes what matters most is for you to sit next to somebody and weep with them or rejoice with them. And sometimes time is the greatest commodity that is really difficult to sacrifice because of how busy we are and how far we have to drive to get to each other's houses and how far we have to go to get to a Christian gathering. So time is precious, but it does take time to express care as part of fellowship. Secondly, talent. You've been given a spiritual gift. The New Testament says that every single believer has a spiritual gift and you are to use it for the edification of other Christians. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And whatever spiritual gift God has given you, you are to use it in order to help that person mature into Christ-likeness. The third is truth. We're to proclaim truth to one another. Speak truth to people. Speak it in love. Encourage people from the Bible, not from your own authority or experience and finally treasure so you can sacrifice time you can sacrifice your talent you can sacrifice or rather impart truth and then finally your treasure specifically finances back in acts 2 the formation of the church and the first christians it says that they were also sharing everything that they had some were so wealthy that they decided to sell a part of their property, perhaps land or a house, and they brought that money to the church. We see Barnabas doing that in Acts chapter 5 in order to benefit the people. Acts 4. In Acts 5, you have somebody else trying to do the same thing and they lie and they die. But your and my expectation as Christians of each other should be the joyful desire God loves a cheerful giver, it says in 2 Corinthians 9. To actually say, you know what? God gives you the power to make wealth. That is Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if God has given you the ability to make wealth, He expects you to then go and use that wealth for the benefit of other believers. There's so many examples in the New Testament about Christians not just the Philippians, but many other Christians sacrificing to benefit other Christians. Because you understand that you are not the owner of your wealth. You're the steward of your wealth. And God will ask you to give an account of that stewardship. Just as you are a steward of time and your talent, God will also ask you to give an account of your treasures. You know, oftentimes we forget that God is the one who gives us the ability to make wealth. And so we act like little kids. They get, a little, they get a gift for Christmas, they play with it, and then they see another gift, they leave that one alone, and they try to snatch the other gift from another kid's hands, and they play with it, and they start crying because the gift is not going according to their plan. And so we look at each other, and we say, well, yeah, God gave me this gift, this talent, this ability, and I'm thankful, but that person's gift is way better. And so we become jealous. And sometimes we try to shade them and kind of cancel them and, and embarrass them because we like their gift better. Kind of like what I did. One of these white elephant exchange games, I got the book Twilight. You guys know about that? <laughs> that was my gift. And in the very back, you know, there's a poster of one of those people in Twilight. A girl was in that, on that poster and I wasn't going to bring that girl home in that book. <laughs> So I accidentally left that book at the house where the party was. God gave you a gift and you neglect it. You put it aside. You don't want to take it home. You don't want to use it. You know what Paul said to Timothy once in 1 Timothy 4? Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. God gave you a gift. Sometimes you're like, ah, I don't want it. I wish I had that gift. 
But whatever gift God gave you, it's tailor-made according to 1 Corinthians 12. It's imparted to you by the Holy Spirit specifically for you. In that sense, you are indispensable to the community, the Christian community. And he expects you to use it. And Paul says, don't neglect this gift. Rather, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. So instead of neglecting, suppressing, not utilizing your spiritual gift, Paul says the opposite should be the case. Take pains, be absorbed, work hard, and see progressive utilization of that gift. You become better and better and better as you continue as the Christian in your life in the use of that spiritual gift. So when people look at your life, they can see, wow, this individual is such a better counselor than they were a year ago. I mean, if I followed that counselor a year ago, I would be in some hospital right now, institution. But today, I'm going to them. Let's hope it's not that extreme. But there should be progress. That's what Paul is saying. Take pains, be absorbed, so that people can see your improvement. If you were to just privately, in your own life, evaluate your use of your spiritual gift at the beginning of 21 to the end of 21, 12 months of using your spiritual gift, You're supposed to use it all the time. That's the expectation. Would you say with all honesty that you have become a much better steward of the spiritual gift that God gave you? Humbly, but honestly. Or would there be a self-assessment of I kind of neglected it? Or I got worse because I never used it. And when I used it, it really messed it up. So have those moments of reflection because when Paul says everybody should be able to see it and see you excel at it, there has to be progress and change. It all starts with one another's. You might be saying, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Help me figure it out. There are 59 statements in the New Testament called the one another's. 40 of them are different, but the total use is 59. Love one another, encourage one another, pray with one another, bear one another's burdens, and so on. Start there. A simple encouragement. A simple prayer. Don't you feel special when somebody asks you on Friday night, hey, what can I pray for you about this coming week? And the next Friday, they actually come back and ask you, hey, how did it go? You feel like, wow, you actually cared and you prayed and you listened and you want to share your prayer requests with those individuals as opposed to those who still pray for you and then don't even remember your name. Paul says over and over and over, apply the one another's in your Christian fellowship. Why do we do this? Why commit to fellowship? Quickly, a couple things. One, because it makes it more like Jesus. Because fellowship is all about serving. It's all about stewarding your spiritual gift. And it makes you more like Jesus. As I mentioned in the very beginning, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. So when you do so, you are just like Christ serving other people. Secondly, it promotes the glory of God. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 talks about spiritual gifts, puts them into two categories, serving and speaking gifts. And it says you do them, you exercise them to the glory of God. So every single time you do exercise your spiritual gift as part of fellowship, you are glorifying God. Third, it demonstrates love for God. Listen to this verse, Hebrews 6.10. Write it down. This is a cool verse, kind of buried in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is known as a chapter of theological debate. Can you lose your salvation or can you not lose your salvation? That's what everybody thinks about Hebrews 6. But listen to this verse, Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Isn't that a cool verse? God is not unjust so as to forget. God is recording your ministry to the saints. But that ministry is being done toward his name. He puts toward his name first. And then he says, this is how you're serving his name and loving him. By ministering to the saints. Your ministry to one another is a reflection of your love for God. It's not about loving that person as much as it is about loving God by serving that person. 
whoever that person is. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done for me. There's an element of serving God by serving others. And finally, contributing to the maturity of the saints. Ultimately, this is why we serve one another. Because in Ephesians 4, there's a long section. Pastor John's going to get to it pretty soon in his preaching on Sunday morning. But beginning in verses 7 and all the way down to verse 16, it's all about God giving you spiritual gifts in order to serve other Christians. And if you look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, we equip the saints to do the work of the service in order for all of us to be unified in our faith, to have a full knowledge of the Son of God, to become mature to the fullness of Christ. That is the fourth reason why we serve, why we fellowship, in order to promote maturity among the saints. So everybody is moving closer and closer in their understanding of who Jesus is and how we're going to spend eternity with him and how that should affect our lives today. Well, no relationship is free of pain. And that's a fourth point. A fourth element of genuine fellowship is correction. We're part of a unified community. We commit to one another. We care for one another. And then at times, we have to correct one another. Correction is a part of the Christian life. And I would say this is the hardest thing about fellowship. It's never easy to confront a friend. It's never easy to confront a superior. It's never easy to confront somebody that you care for when you see that they are in sin. It's hard to find that balance between love covers a multitude of sins. And if you see your brother sinning, go to him. How do you know when to call out a sin Versus cover a sin. First Peter 4 8 versus Matthew 18. Or Ephesians 5.11, expose sin. And I would say practically speaking, you should look for a pattern in the life. When you see a pattern of sin, you should go to a person and say, Hey, I've seen this repeatedly in your life. I believe this is sin. Let's talk about this. There should be a default setting for love covers a multitude of sins. It might have been a mistake. It might have been an error. It might be just in, in not intentional. No, it's still sin. It's still wrong. But that's where forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. But also remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. The idea being that if you keep your sins secret, they will be exposed. And unless you repent from your sin before God and change your life in alignment with Scripture, God will find a way to expose that sin. It should scare all of us as Christians if you have a hidden life of sin. A pastor likes to say, and has said this for many, many years, time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time And truth will come out. So while we may be tempted to look the other way to preserve our friendship. And not call somebody out. Not correct somebody in sin. The Bible calls us that there has to be an element of correction, confrontation. There's no such thing as the gift of confrontation. Somebody said that once to me. I have the gift of confrontation. That's not in the Bible. So if you like to think that about yourself. You have the wrong gift identified in yourself. You don't have it. That would be the worst gift to have, by the way. <laughs> Nobody will ever receive you as a gift giver. Think about that. But there has to be a time when we have to confront one another. And we do so according to 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must be not quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth 
And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, if you understand what's happening behind the scenes in that person's life, having been held captive by the snare of the devil to do his will, your approach to that person will be patient, gentle, kind, not quarrelsome. Now, there's a context of an unbeliever in this passage, but that should be applied in any confrontation because Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. So in other words, we should be patient and kind with people and don't assume that that person is really just hating you and doesn't want to change and doesn't want to be faithful to Christ. I think the Christian point perspective is, no, if you profess to be a believer, then your desire is to please Christ. And you want other people to come alongside you and say, help me. Help me be more like Christ. Help me love Christ. Help me be more faithful, more obedient. I don't want to disobey Christ. We're not coming into that person's life to shame them, embarrass them, cancel them, isolate them, cast them aside like a leper. No, we're here. Hey, we want to help you. The point of all correction is restoration. Now, there are times when the person refuses to repent. They hold fast to their sin and they're unfortunately hard-hearted. Then you bring another believer with you. And if they don't listen to two people, then you tell the church, hey, go after this professing believer because he or she is saying, I'm a Christian, I love Christ, I want to follow Christ, but they're not living like it. And then the church goes after the individual. When the whole church goes after a person and that person still refuses to, believe, to, to repent and follow Christ faithfully, then Matthew 18 says, well, you need to... Ask that person to leave your community, your Christian community. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that sin will spread. And in order to contain it, you isolate it. But that is the final step with a person who refuses to listen to any correction. Of course, at that point, the pastors and the elders are involved in that process. But it all begins of us being sensitive and patient and gentle to help one another and correct one another when necessary to be more faithful to Christ. This is the motivation. James 5.19. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's an element of salvation at stake here. A genuine believer will repent and will follow Christ. So, as we think about fellowship, as we think about this coming year, true fellowship is characterized by those four elements. It's a community that we are part of. And our relationships are with other Christians of eternal value. And we are committed to one another. We have a common purpose. We promote the kingdom of God and therefore, we care for one another. We help one another. We serve one another. We edify one another. And finally, when necessary, we correct one another. And we do so speaking the truth in love. This is how our pastor says it. The church's fellowship is profound, spiritual, and real. It's shared common life that is absolutely essential. It is what our Lord prayed for in his famous prayer in John 17. When he repeatedly said, I pray that they may be one. Jesus wasn't praying for some kind of social oneness, but for spiritual reality. That prayer was answered when the church was born. Jesus prayed that the father would make his children one, as he and the father are one. What an amazing parallel. We are one in the way that the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are one. Trinitarian fellowship is the model for fellowship in the church. A shared life, shared love, shared purpose, shared truth, and shared power. This is fellowship. And what I'm encouraging us as a Bible study to commit to is to this kind of fellowship. That if we actually exercise these Components, we commit to this and we do this faithfully. I do believe God will bless it and God will produce fruit within our ministry and beyond because this is what the Christian life is about. 
It's fellowshipping with one another to the honor of his name. Are you willing to commit to this for this year? Are you willing to commit to genuine friendships, genuine fellowship beyond the social barrier? You're willing to go deeper and to truly live the Christian life with other Christians alongside you because it has eternal ramifications. Lord God, we are mindful that your life flows through us. And when you are revealed in all glory in the future, then we shall be revealed because we have the same life flowing through us, eternal life. You gave it to us. And that is what binds us. That is, is, the, that is the foundation of our fellowship that we all expect an eternal ex- existence with you. Let that truth guide our fellowship for the rest of our Christian journey. That apart from having eternal life, we're not in fellowship with each other. We're not in fellowship with you. So do you pray for those who may not possess eternal life because they have not repented from their sin and followed you as Savior and King. That the Holy Spirit would regenerate them, give them life and confer eternal life on them. That they too would join the fellowship that we all experience because all of us are tied to you, the source of life. For us who are following you, who profess to love you and to know you and to want to spend eternity with you, I ask that true genuine fellowship, biblical fellowship, true Christian fellowship would characterize every single person in this room. That 2022 becomes a year that defines us through this prism of fellowship. That we love one another, we care for one another, we serve one another, we're committed to the same cause. And that when necessary, we help one another to be more faithful in that cause. Pray that we would be humble and that we would be confident to follow you and use the spiritual gift that you've given us to the edification of those around us. What a thought that we're going to spend eternity together. And to not be able to invest into that eternity here and now through our friendships, that's a flavor of heaven. Help us to value that. Help us to invest into that. And help us to hold that precious. To stand with Spurgeon and to say the church is the most precious entity on this earth. It's valuable to us because it's a preview of heaven. Lord God, help us. We want to follow you. We want to have genuine fellowship with you and with each other. But we need your Holy Spirit to aid us in this endeavor. So please send the Holy Spirit. Sustain our fellowship, our friendships. And help them to move beyond the social into the spiritual. So that we are genuinely fellowshipping with one another every single time we see each other. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.